may have read in the news uh, this week a story that is emerging from an inquest into the death of a mountain climber. Uh, Christopher Parrott had been trekking in the uh, mountains of Snowdonia with his wife and he was unfamiliar with the surroundings but he was eager to make it to the top of the mountain. And so he consulted a popular mountain guide. He assumed that the guide would give him the accurate lie of the land. And he found a chapter in the guide which was entitled, Trifan, the easy way. And since mountain climbers are always looking for the easy way up the mountain, he began to follow its directions. However, quickly it became clear that the climb was much more difficult than the chapter suggested. In fact, some climbing experts have since uh, claimed that the book gives a false representation of what is in fact a difficult climb. Uh, One climber was quoted as saying, there is no easy way up Trifan. Sadly, so it proved. As Christopher Parrott tragically fell from a ledge, Uh, to his death. And the inquest continues into next week as to whether uh, Trifan the Easy Way was a misleading title and as to whether this guidebook was a misleading and dangerous guide. Well, something we can conclude with more certainty, absolute certainty, is that during the ministry of the prophet Jeremiah, that we've been considering over these last nine or so months, we've titled the series, Living in Hope, that during this ministry there were guides, uh, not guidebooks, but of the living variety, who gave a false representation of a perilous journey. Let's not call it Trifan, the easy way, but let's call it Egypt, the easy way. Because you see, these bold guides suggested to the remnant of Judah that given their situation, they should not only travel to Egypt, but they assured them that this trip would be the safe and the sensible option. It was an easy route that would preserve, not endanger, their lives. However, tragically, disastrously, and irreversibly, this proved to be a fatal Mistake, leading to death and destruction. A fatal mistake which, incidentally, we always make when we follow fools to Egypt. When we fail to trust God and when we flee to Egypt rather than refuge in the Lord. Let's read together then this salutary tale. It's found in the Bible and it's found in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah uh, chapter 41. And we're reading from verse 16 onwards. Now, we left things on a, a cliffhanger last week. Governor Gedaliah had been assassinated. The remnant of Judah are on the run. And it's like one of these soaps, and you're waiting for the next episode. Well, here's what happened next. Jeremiah 41:16. Then Johanan, son of Kareah, 
And all the army officers who were with him led away all the survivors from Mizpah, whom he had recovered from Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, after he had assassinated Gedaliah, son of Ahikam. The soldiers, women, children, and court officials he had brought from Gibeon. And he went on, stopping at Gerith Kimham near Bethlehem, on their way to Egypt to escape the Babylonians. They were afraid of them because Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, had killed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had appointed as governor over the land. Then all the army officers, including Johanan, son of Kareah, and Jezaniah, son of Hoshiah, and all the people, from the least to the greatest, approached Jeremiah the prophet and said to him, Please hear our petition and pray to the Lord your God for this entire remnant. For as you now see, though we were once many, now only a few are left. Pray that the Lord your God will tell us where we should go and what we should do. I have heard you, replied Jeremiah the prophet. I will certainly pray to the Lord your God as you have requested. I will tell you everything the Lord says and will keep nothing back from you. Then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act in accordance with everything the Lord your God sends you to tell us. Whether it is favorable or unfavorable, we will obey the Lord our God to whom we are sending you so that it will go well with us. For we will obey the Lord our God. Ten days later, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So he called together Johanan, son of Korea, and all the army officers who were with him, and all the people from the least to the greatest. He said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your petition, says. If you stay in this land, I will build you up and not tear you down. I will plant you and not uproot you. For I am grieved over the disaster I have inflicted on you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you now fear. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you and will save you and deliver you from his hands. I will show you compassion so that he will have compassion on you and restore you to your land. However, if you say, we will not stay in this land, and so disobey the Lord your God, and if you say, no, we will go and live in Egypt, where we will not see war or hear the trumpet or be hungry for bread, then hear the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. If you're determined to go to Egypt and do not go, and do go to settle there, then the sword you fear will overtake you there, and the famine you dread will follow you into Egypt, and there you will die. Indeed, all who are determined to go to Egypt, to settle there, will die by the sword, famine, and plague. Not one of them will survive or escape the disaster I will bring on them. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. As my anger and wrath have been poured out on those who lived in Jerusalem, so will my wrath be poured out on you when you go to Egypt. You will be an object of cursing and horror, of condemnation and reproach, and you will never see this place again. O remnant of Judah, the Lord has told you, do not go to Egypt. Be sure of this, I warn you today that you made a fatal mistake when you sent me to the Lord your God and say, pray to the Lord our God for us. Tell us everything he says and we will do it. I have told you today, but you still have not obeyed the Lord your God in all he sent me to tell you. So now, be sure of this. 
You will die with a sword, famine, and plague in the place where you want to go to settle. When Jeremiah finished telling the people all the words of the Lord their God, everything the Lord had sent him to tell them, Azariah son of Hoshiah and Johanan son of Kareah and all the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, You are lying. The Lord our God has not sent you to say you must not go to Egypt to settle there. But Baruch, son of Neriah, is inciting you against us to hand us over to the Babylonians so that they may kill us or carry us into exile to Babylon. So Johanan, son of Korea, and all the army officers and all the people disobeyed the Lord's command to stay in the land of Judah. Instead, Johanan, son of Korea, and all the army officers led away all the remnant of Judah who had come back to live in the land of Judah from all the nations where they had been scattered. They also led away all the men, women, and children, and the king's daughters, whom Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, had left with Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah the prophet, and Baruch, son of Neriah. So they entered Egypt in disobedience to the Lord and went as far as Tapanes. In Tapanes, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. While the Jews are watching, Take some large stones with you and bury them in clay in the brick pavement at the entrance to Pharaoh's palace in Tapanes. Then say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. I will send for my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and I will set his throne over these stones I have buried here. He will spread his royal canopy above them. He will come and attack Egypt, bringing death to those destined for death captivity to those destined for captivity, and the sword to those destined for the sword. He will set fire to the temples of the gods of Egypt. He will burn their temples and take their gods captive. As a shepherd wraps his garment round him, so will he wrap Egypt round himself and depart from there unscathed. There in the temple of the sun in Egypt, he will demolish the sacred pillars and will burn down the temples of the gods of Egypt." Well, this is the word of God, and it chronicles the fatal mistake that the people of Judah made, and that we are to avoid. And it is, of course, the section that we have read, a historical record. And so it's important that we understand something of the history that overlays the principles that are ever relevant. And the essential background is given, notice, in verses 16 to 18 of chapter 42. That the people of Judah, that the remnant of Judah, uh, find themselves on the run. As verse 18 points out, this is because the then governor, a man named Gedaliah, has been assassinated. Uh, this was actually a huge problem. You see, the superpower of the day, Babylon, had put this man in place. This was the merciless Babylon, which had ransacked Jerusalem. And this was the mighty Babylon, which had carted off Judah's elites into exile. This Babylon had put Gedaliah in power. And so this is a huge problem. When some bright spark named Ishmael takes it upon himself to bump off Gedaliah. And it makes him and anyone associated with him marked men and marked women. 
And so they begin their heart-thumping getaway, escaping the Babylonians. First, uh, Ishmael, he wants to hightail it east to the country of Ammon, where he has some allies. But he doesn't get very far, because this other chap, Johanan, uh, liberates the captives. Ishmael escapes, uh, but now the entourage are under the new leadership of Johanan. And yet, of course, they are still under threat. Uh, These people are associated with the death of Gedaliah. They were there. And if we're thinking that it's only a matter of time before the Babylonians hear of the news, before retribution comes, Johanan now leads them south. Not to Ammon, but to Egypt this time. Humanly speaking, this was uh, a wise approach, you might have thought. Egypt was the perfect safe house. For one thing, it was quite a few miles further down the road from Babylon. For another thing, Egypt was no friend of Babylon. And perhaps most importantly, Egypt is militarily strong. It really does appear strong enough to defend itself against the Babylonian attack. You might say this truly was the easy way out. This really does seem Egypt the easy way Head to Egypt. You'll be safe. And yet for all its human wisdom, there was one fatal flaw with this plan. God was not on board. And deep down, the people know it. Surely they remember that from Abraham onwards, it's always been a bad idea to go down to Egypt. Maybe they recall that from Moses onwards, it was always a good idea to leave Egypt, if you happen to be there. And more importantly, perhaps they recall how Jeremiah, from years before, had said repeatedly, don't go down to Egypt. Don't trust in the gods of Egypt. The land of Egypt is the place of your slavery, not the place of your salvation. And so they pause for thought. Maybe it was a little pang of guilt, second thoughts, and a few miles down the road to Egypt, they stop at a place near Bethlehem. And it is here that we find them asking for prayer. This is the the brief historical basis. Uh, If you want more information, listen back to the sermon last week online. But this brings us to the first point that we need to consider. First of all, urgent prayer. Urgent prayer. Then all the army officers, as is chapter 42, verse 1, including Johanan, son of Kareah, and Jezaniah, son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least to the greatest, approached Jeremiah the prophet and said to him, Please hear our petition and pray to the Lord your God for this entire remnant. And notice that at least by appearance, the people seem to start off on the right foot. Wouldn't you say? As from verse 1 of this chapter, they come to urgently plead with God. Or more accurately, as they implore the prophet, Jeremiah, to plead with God for them. To the undiscerning eye, this is something of a model prayer. On the surface, Uh, It's a model prayer. For example, it's a truly collective prayer. It's unanimous. There's no person sitting up the back row withholding their amen because they can't agree with this. 
All the people, from the least to the greatest, bring the prayer. And in addition, it is a correct prayer. By which I mean that the content is spot on. One commentator says, quote, There could hardly be a better plea for guidance, end quote. Verse 3, Pray that the Lord your God will tell us where we should go and what we should do. Is that a bad prayer? Nothing wrong with the content. It is correct. It is collective. It is also, thirdly, unreserved. Whether it is favorable or unfavorable, they say in verse 6. Whatever the answer to this prayer, we will obey the Lord your God to whom we are sending you so that it will go well with us. We will obey the Lord. Do you think that's a flawed prayer? You know, sometimes we can pray prayers that are flawless on the surface, yet which are deeply flawed under the surface. And you see, in closer examination, even now, there are some telltale signs that this prayer is a hollow prayer. Later events will bear this out unmistakably. But there are at least two giveaways even here. First of all, did you notice the timing of the prayer? Is it not revealing, though perhaps not conclusive, isn't it revealing that this prayer is offered when the people are halfway down the road to Egypt? See, if they truly wanted to find the Lord's will, if that was preeminent, if that was prominent, why when they were released at Mizpah did they not stop and say, let's take ten minutes here, folks. We've got a huge decision to make. Where are we going to go? Let's seek the Lord's face in this. That would have been the time to do it, wouldn't it? But instead, without any consultation, they make their move in the wrong direction. And then halfway down the road, they stop and they say, What do you think, Lord? Jeremiah, could you take this to the Lord and see what he thinks? You see the problem with that kind of thing, don't you? When you're halfway down the road to Egypt, it's much harder to turn around. If the Lord tells you to turn around. Go in a new direction, a righteous direction. It's much harder when your feet have already traveled halfway down the road to disobedience to authentically ask, Lord, what should I do? Where should I go? And be really open to the Lord's direction. Contemporary example. How many Christians, of all ages, plunge into relationships which they suspect might not be right for faith reasons? They suspect it. But they don't deliberate on the matter. They don't consult the Bible. They don't pray over it or ask anyone about it. They simply begin to walk down that road. And in the initial stages, hey, it's just a little bit of fun. It's just a fairly casual, relaxed relationship. But after a few years, things get serious. And you think to themselves, hasn't this hit me from the blind side? I need to ask the Lord about this. I need to read the Scriptures about this because I'm a Christian. I don't know whether I could marry or whether I should marry someone who's an unbeliever. And I need to ask some godly Christians about it. But let me ask you, how easy is it going to be for that person to truly seek God's will at that point? 
to give that any kind of objective consideration. Same applies to many wisdom decisions as well. Not issues of right or wrong, but what would be the wise and prudent thing to do? How many people move down a particular area of ministry, believing that they might be called by God, and they've never asked God about it. They've never asked anyone about it. And then, somewhere along the line, they begin to consult. And you see, we've already got the ball rolling. And what we're really looking for is for the Lord to rubber stamp what we have already decided. And we go to a Jeremiah, someone of religious standing, and we say, Jeremiah, could you ask the Lord on my behalf? And if he doesn't reproduce what we already think in response, we write him off. What does he know? Let's go find another prophet, see what he says. Friends, sin is such a subtle enemy, isn't it? And so we need to be watchful of ourselves and we need to examine ourselves closely for these sorts of things. See, the timing of the prayer is a tip-off to its hollowness, but also, let me suggest, the second-hand nature of it. It's revealing. See, the people of Judah, you know, they're not being respectful here when they ask Jeremiah to pray in their behalf. That would be a most unlikely courtesy to extend to this prophet that they've chucked in a pit, who they've beaten up on several occasions, whose every message they have ignored. A close reading of verse 2 suggests a different motive. Please hear our petition and pray to the Lord our God. Is that what the text says? Pray to the Lord, your God. Your God, Jeremiah. And they reference God in the second person. Your God. It's no accident. It comes again in verse 3. Pray that the Lord, your God. Now again, this isn't, this isn't something to bank the economy on, folks. But it seems to be another small indication that all is not well with this prayer. That actually something is missing in terms of this people's intimacy with God. If they ever had it. Let me interject here and, and ask a very simple question, an important question this morning. Can, can you say with integrity this morning, my God? Can you say my God? Can you say with other Christians, our God? Or if you're being honest, do you really need to say your God? Your God. You see, Christianity is not about a set of rules. It's about a personal relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And it needs to have that my God, our God, intimacy. You see, these people, they lack that. And it adds to the impression that this is actually something of a hollow request, which we will see it is. This is really the prayer of the opportunist. That reminds me of a story I once read about the British chess player, Nigel Short. He was pretty nifty at chess in his day, and he was playing an elimination match in Spain uh, for the right to meet Garry Kasparov, back in 93, I think. And at noon, he did something very peculiar. Every day, he would visit the local church, and go down to the front of the church, and pray. Three hours exactly before the match. And he did this every day, before every game. And one of the reporters who had thought that Nigel Short was an atheist uh, collared him on this one day and said, I, I don't think you're a religious person uh, and yet you're praying about your matches every day. 
And he replied candidly, so I am. But I'm also an opportunist. See, many people, these people certainly, were just opportunists in their prayers. They just came to the Lord looking for his assistance at a difficult time. And yet, you see, what the Lord is looking for is for something more. He's looking for faith. He's looking for us to trust him. Not just our own instincts. And this will require, as we come to the second part of the story, necessary faith. Necessary faith. We need the ten days later. Isn't it interesting that the Lord makes them wait for it? Ten days, they're just sitting around, waiting on the Lord. And then the word comes to Jeremiah the prophet, and he gathers all the people together, and what the Lord has to say is absolutely startling. The Lord puts his finger on the one thing they lack. It reminds me a little bit of Jesus. You remember with the rich young ruler? And he comes and he says, Jesus, I'll do anything for you. And Jesus knows that the one thing the guy can't give up is his money. And he puts his finger on it. And he says, if you just give all your money away, come and follow me. And you can be my disciple. And he can't do it. Well, it's the same kind of thing here. The Lord pinpoints the very area where they're lacking. He sees behind the facade. He can see their lack of faith. He can see their lack of intimacy. He can see their lack of integrity. And so seeing what is lacking, what does the Lord do? He calls for extraordinary faith. You say you'll do whatever I say? You'll trust me whatever I command? Prove it. And boy, does he put them to the test with a call to faith that is, by any account, immense. Stay in the land, the Lord says, verse 10. If you stay in the land, I will build you up and not tear you down. I will plant you and not uproot you. You're asking, should we stay or should we go? Stay, says the Lord. And I'll build you into a people. And I'll plant you firmly in the land. And no one will uproot you. And then verse 11, he says, secondly, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you now fear. I know you're scared, says the Lord, but you don't need to be. And then he gives them good reason, as he always does. For I am with you and will save you and will deliver you from his hand. I'm bigger than Babylon, says the Lord. And if you'll just trust me, you'll see me work. And you will see my compassion at work. I will show you, verse 12, compassion, so that he will have compassion on you and restore you to the land. He also says in verse 10, it's a wonderful little verse, that he says, I am grieved over the disaster I have inflicted on you. Friends, this is something we need to understand when God's judgment is meted out. And we see this in Jeremiah again and again. God doesn't love it when people perish. And the Lord says to them, as he thinks back over the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of his people and the land laid bare, he says, not you two. I don't want you to suffer the same fate. I don't want you to end up in exile too. Let me show you my compassion. Trust me. And sadly, this requires a faith that they don't have. And what is worse, 
What is more is that they have put their faith in other things in Egypt. It's like the old song used to say, you've got to have faith. The issue is what you have your faith in. I found it strange over the years chatting to people who are not Christians and and, uh, when they discover of your your convictions, they say, you know, you've got faith. I, I don't have any faith. Really? There's a million and one things you can put your faith in and most of them are not God. And these people were putting their faith in something all right, but it was in Egypt. And so often that's the case with us. We trust in what falls under the rubric of Egypt. What the world thinks is safe, what the world thinks is humanly sensible. Humanly speaking, writes Philip Ryken, escape to Egypt was the best foreign policy. It was in a safe neighborhood, a long, long way from Babylon, and the Egyptians have plenty of food and a stable economy. So going down to Egypt made a lot of sense. Let's be honest. If you were in their sandals, what would you have done? There was only one problem with the flight to Egypt, says Riken. It was against the will of God. And yet we go there, don't we? Isn't it true that Egypt is often our safe house? Where is your safe house? Where's the place that you run to when the pressure is on, when the heat is cranked up? See, it's one of the most revealing things that can happen because it shows where your trust is at. We can sing about all this stuff, about refuging in God and trusting in the Lord with all our hearts. But is it to God we go when the heat is on? See, that's the test. Where do do you run and hide? Think about it. When you've had a difficult week. Money? The things that money can buy? The world's non-stop entertainments that provide escapism? Alcohol? A relationship? Sport? Where do you flee when the pressure's cranked up? Do you, do you refuge in the world in Egypt or do you refuge in the Lord? That's a question that Christian missionaries have had to settle long before they head onto the field, isn't it? Some of whom live in unsafe situations, humanly speaking. They choose Christ over comfort. While members of their wider family, perhaps, who don't share their perspective, think they're mad. Come down to Egypt. It's nice and safe and secure back here. And and the same is true of a younger person in school who's a Christian in an an environment where Jesus isn't cool and church is passé. Making a Christian stand can lead to you being ridiculed, despised. And what's a sensible option? It's a no-brainer, right? Just fall in with the crowd. Just fall back to Egypt. It's the perfect hideout. And by the way, the same can happen in the adult working environment as well. How many of us have never ducked an opportunity when we could have stuck our heads above the parapet for Christ? Because let's be honest, it seems safer just to blend in, just to fall and retreat back to Egypt. Trusting in the Lord seems high risk. But friends, one thing this story teaches 
is that it is never, it is never, never safe to take refuge in the world. If Egypt is your hideout, then friends, you're on a hiding to nothing. Whereas exposed is when, when my son, we sometimes play hide and seek, and uh, Glenn, he's four years old, and he hides his head under the curtains. And his whole body's hanging out, legs, everything. And he's got his little head tucked away, and he thinks I can't see him. Ha! And he thinks, I'm not going to get him. And the covers are just blown away so easily. And the Lord says similarly, you cannot run. You cannot hide. There's no safety in Egypt. What appears to be a place of protection will soon become a place of destruction. Then the sword, verse 16, you fear will overtake you there. And the famine you dread will follow you into Egypt. And there you will die. It's a terrible promise. Death by sword. Death by famine. Death by plague. And the inevitable reproach that's attached to that. It won't be a case of hide out there for a few years and then come back. Which I think is what they were envisaging. We'll just wait till it cools off, then we'll come back. Like a person who's thinking of kind of falling away from Christ for a few years. Maybe I'll do Egypt for a couple of years and then I'll come back. How do you know? That wasn't the case for Judah. The Lord says you will never see this place again. This will be permanent exile. And all this is a demonstration of the Lord's anger and wrath. You see, he has compassion on those who repent and he longs to be compassionate, but he is also a God of justice. God does not let crimes happen without punishment. And therefore, faith, which is what these people were lacking, you see, is a most serious business. Faith is not an optional extra, as we sometimes think. Faith is not an incidental factor. It is a matter of life and death. Without it, you fall off the cliff. And thus, Jeremiah says, you've made a fatal mistake today, verse 20, when you sent me to the Lord your God and said, pray to the Lord, tell us everything he says, and we'll do it. Jeremiah prays, faith is demanded, but they won't trust and obey. And that is their fatal mistake. And indeed, briefly, as we come to the final part of our story, this is expanded on a little bit more, that this getaway is nothing of the sort. There is inevitable judgment. Sin leads to judgment as surely as night leads to day, as autumn leads to winter. As far as God is concerned, there's no such thing as crime without punishment. The two are inevitably linked. And unfortunately, it's just as inevitable that this particular people will reject Jeremiah's message. They're like perhaps some friend that you have, and they're always falling into the same kind of trouble. They fall into a particular kind of hole, and you help them out of it, and a few months later, they've dug the very same hole, just in a different location. And Jeremiah had been doing this for 40 years preaching to these people about the same things. And they were falling into the same sins. No wonder he's skeptical. It's interesting, isn't it, if this account is precisely chronological, that Jeremiah predicts the people's rebellion even before they rebel. comes at the end of his message. He says, you're, 
You don't even obey this. You're not even going to follow this instruction. And yet even Jeremiah probably cannot predict the breathtaking scale of their rejection. They're not accepting some of the message or part of the message. They're having none of it. And therefore they deny the truth. Verse 2 of message and messenger. You're lying. The Lord our God has not sent you to say you mustn't go down to Egypt. Additionally, they proclaim a lie. Verse 3, suggesting that Baruch, uh, who was Jeremiah's scribe, is sort of encouraging Jeremiah to come out with this suggestion. It's hard to imagine Jeremiah getting bullied by anybody, given what we've read in his prophecy. But this is what they were saying. But the bottom line is what verse 4 underscores, that in all this, they disobey the Lord. So Johanan, son of Korea, and all the army officers and all the people disobeyed the Lord's command to stay in the land of Judah. You see, they were never really interested in what the Lord had to say. They'd already made up their minds. As Philip Ryken quaintly puts it, they were only willing to follow God if he was going in their direction. They thought they had a better plan than God had for their lives. And as Warren Wearsby puts it, once again, God's people walked by sight, not by faith. And they walked all the way down to Egypt. Every step, knowing they were disobeying the message of God. It's a very sad story, isn't it? All the men, women, children, kings, daughters, and then it's almost as if it's sort of underlined in the phrases, and Jeremiah the prophet, and Baruch, they were included in this crowd. What a cost for Jeremiah and his faithful scribe. No cherry on the cake at the end of their 40-year ministry. You might think something would go right. They would listen to his last message, but no. And though they had committed no sin themselves, they suffer for the sins of the people as they're dragged along. And the the worst thing of this is that presumably Johanan and company, as they enter into Egypt, they think that all of this is a good thing. They head as far as Tapanis, which you notice there is deep into Egypt. It's far away from the border, so they've got a bit of extra security. And they probably rejoice in what seems a sensible move. They settle down, they begin to enjoy the good life under the godless leadership of the Egyptians. And sometimes it's like that, isn't it? Disobeying God doesn't seem to come with an immediate price tag. Our Christian commitment cools. We start coming to church really sporadically. Start doing things we shouldn't be doing. And uh, guess what? Lightning bolts don't fall from the sky. But it's a wrong assumption to think that because God doesn't act immediately, he will not act. And for a while it seems as if life without Christ is an easier life. And maybe it is. But then the Lord says, I want you to give these folks a little reminder. And this is really the last thing that is chronicled that Jeremiah does, that we know of. We're not sure how it finished for Jeremiah in Egypt. And sadly, it is a sign of judgment. In Japan, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. While the Jews are watching, 
take some large stones with you and bury them in clay in the brick pavement at the entrance of Pharaoh's palace. When the people are watching and wondering, what on earth is he doing? Burying those stones under the temple. Tell them this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, verse 10. I will send my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will set his throne over these stones I've buried here. What a sting in the tail. What they had been fleeing from will overtake them. What they feared and they, and they ran from will come after them. Death, captivity and the sword. It's already been mentioned. But verse 10 is a fresh revelation. Who will be the means of this? My servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. The guy they were running from, the chap they thought they'd escaped, he was going to come right into their little town, right up to the little temple of the Egyptian gods, and he was going to set his canopy and his throne right there. Not because he couldn't run and hide from Nebuchadnezzar so much, as he couldn't run and hide from the Lord. You see, if we will not hide in the Lord, this is the really essential thing, if we will not hide in the Lord, we cannot hide from the Lord and His judgment. I know that's not a popular message today as I, as I finish. Talk of judgment. But it's a message we need to hear. You see, most people that you talk to about Christianity, deep down in their heart of hearts, believe that if there is a God and they ignore Him, He will let them off the hook. They do. Ask them. Ask a, a non-Christian. And the Bible says something different. No, He won't. If we don't preach this part of the message today, let me suggest to you, no one becomes Christians in the 21st century. You can get some churches which are immensely popular, 20 times as big as Charlotte Chapel, and they preach a therapeutic gospel, some of them, which basically says, you're okay. And the crowds love it. They flock to it. But you know what? No one is converted. What would they be converted from? They don't believe there's sinful people. They don't believe there's a need to flee the wrath to come, as Paul put it elsewhere. And so they think, fair enough, come along to this God who just loves me no matter what I do. And in the rest of the week, they basically hide out in Egypt. Bring the odd opportunistic prayer. I've been reading this week on holiday a book by Ian Murray on the life of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a great preacher, American preacher, who was part of a great revival in the 18th century in Northampton. And I was blown away by the description of revival. Mike was praying for that earlier on. Murray said that against common notions of what revival would look like, it mainly involved a collective sense of sin in the community. That's how it felt. The most common sound was weeping. The most common prayer was, Have mercy, O God. People recognized their need of a Savior. That's why they came to the Savior. Never said Murray was there such joy and such holy fear in one community at one time. And an overwhelming sense of the majesty of God. Everyone was running for cover. And the question is, where are you running to hide? Is it in the world? 
Or is it in the Lord? God is my refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. I, I plead with you very simply at the end of this service, don't run to Egypt. Don't make the same fatal mistake that these folk made. Trust in the Lord. That's a helpful verse to meditate on with all your heart. And He will make your paths straight. Let's pray.